Alright, well, we're close to Halloween, so no better time for some creepy stuff. But first of all, good to talk to you again. My name's Tim Hacker, and I will be your host. Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to all the unexplained mysteries of existence, as well as everything weird, bizarre, and dark in the world. In this Halloween episode, we're going to go over all the famous cases of Ed and Lorraine Warren, the renowned demonologists and uh, pretty famous paranormal investigators. Ed's been dead for a while, and sadly recently Lorraine died at the ripe old age of 92, so she lived a pretty good life. So we'll just like honor them and explore what made them so famous on the paranormal scene. Now, there has been a lot said about Ed and Lorraine Warren. Socially conditioned people always attack what they don't understand and anything that shakes the little box that they've accepted as reality. Some people say that they are master demonologists and unrivaled experts in paranormal investigation, while others say that they're frauds and only out for the money. But, like most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Despite any opposing opinions about the Warrens, they have had a huge influence on paranormal investigation that is unrivaled and has inspired generations to come. The Warrens' popularity exploded recently in the past decade or so, and no doubt thanks to their massively popular and successful Conjuring movies, including Annabelle, The Nun, you know, that whole universe. That is all based off of Warren cases. They claim to have covered over 10,000 cases on The Unexplained, so it's a deep pool to pull resources of stories from. The two even made a museum of all their occult and haunted objects that they acquired throughout their careers. And when asked, the Warrens themselves would refer to themselves as demonologists, and they had a very heavy leaning towards Christianity, which may be a bias that somewhat damages their credibility. And don't get me wrong, not that Christianity is a bad thing at all, just that there's a much bigger picture to high strangeness. And really nonetheless, they were experts in their field. Lorraine herself was allegedly a psychic who could see the auras of people ever since she was a small girl. For the longest time, she never wanted to tell anyone about her special gifts for fear of people calling her crazy. And who could blame her? Most people who've experienced more than the mundane take it to their grave with them for good reason. When the Warrens met, Lorraine was only 16 and Ed was pretty much right away attracted to her, noticing that there was something special about her. Something that made her different from other girls. This unique aspect of her made him almost instantly, I guess, like, uh, infatuated with her? Ed also experienced bizarre supernatural phenomenon since childhood, just like Lorraine. He claimed to become a self-taught demonologist and would grow up to be a World War II veteran and police officer. He was also an author and lecturer and altogether had a pretty impressive resume. Overall, their career has inspired dozens of movies, novels, and anything you can really think of. So, this paranormal couple has left quite a creepy but fascinating legacy behind them. Their stories of ghosts and hauntings are legendary in the paranormal investigation community, as well as notorious among skeptics. They were also key in training many demonologists and paranormal investigators as successors to them. But enough blabbing. It's time to get weird. Let's get into some of the most famous and well-known cases that the Warrens covered in their long careers. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. We're going to start out with the Amityville case. I'm pretty sure that most people have heard of this case because it's been made into a bunch of best-selling books, movies, and all around has a pretty firm spot in pop culture. Skeptics have bent over backwards trying to discredit this case, but despite all their efforts, the majority of the phenomena that happened there remains unexplained. Amityville is located on the south shore of Long Island, USA. It's decently close to New York City, only about an hour away, give or take, but far enough away to be a quiet community. The history of the area goes back pretty far and has even been home to some pretty famous historical figures. It even goes back further than America itself, to the original settlers. 
the Montaukit and Shinnecock Native Americans. The natives believe the area to be similar to, in modern times, might be described as ley lines, like a powerful spiritual vortex or something, a place where the a place where the veil between the material world and spiritual planes was very thin. Spiritual entities could cross over much more freely there than other places on Earth. So the Native Americans held the entire area of Amityville in reverence. It was all sacred land, and it had other purposes too. The enemies of the tribe, or those they considered possessed or even influenced by evil spirits, were actually executed there, usually by exposure, meaning they were left with nothing to die from the elements, wild beasts, starvation, dehydration, or whatever. The land has been saturated in human suffering and death since the beginning of its settlements. And when these executed victims' bodies were found, they would be cursed by having their faces buried downward, to always look into the abyss their spirits would never be free from. It was a ritual of execution that became a spiritual prison of sort. To the Native Americans, any souls who were executed and buried in this fashion never, ever left the land. And there are many legends of these cursed spirits doing nightmarish things to those Native Americans who made the mistake of wandering through these forsaken woods. The malevolent entities were very well known for wanting to share their suffering with the living. And then came the European settlers dishing out a whole new reign of terror, taking the land from the natives and building their own settlements. But like usual, they didn't really understand what they were getting into not listening to the superstition of the natives, and building whatever they wanted on any of their sacred land. However, there's no shortage of dark legends concerning Amityville. During the famous Salem witch trials from the 1800s, a supposed magician named John Ketchum came to the area. As the legend goes, he fled from Salem because uh, he was accused of witchcraft, and obviously did not want to get burned at the stake or crushed to death or hung. He came to Amityville to conduct his occult practices without any intrusions. And he was very excited at the energetical spiritual phenomenon that was going on in Amityville. It was beyond anything he could have formally comprehended. Allegedly, he even made his home on the exact spot, or at least near the spot, that the house the Warrens later investigated would one day be built. And the magician lived there for the rest of his life, practicing the occult the whole time, all the way until his death. And supposedly, his body is actually buried, like, uh, somewhere near the property or even underneath it. But then again, it is a legend, so that's if he even ever really existed at all. But without getting too in-depth into the history of the house... There was definitely pretty anomalous occurrences long before the Warrens were ever called to investigate for paranormal activity. On November 13th, 1974, the mansion was the crime scene of a mass murder. In the middle of the night, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo roamed the home and one by one stalked his own family, killing them with a rifle. The family was already troubled and had issues, but... It only seemed to get worse after they moved into the home. Hence the claims that the dark forces around the property influenced the young man to kill his own family. But many did just chalk it up to Ronald being psychotic and just suffering from severe mental illness that wasn't being treated. However, despite those claims, there definitely is an unexplainable aspect to the murders. Every single one of the victims were found in their bed as if they'd been sleeping. How is it possible that a single person, acting alone, could kill his six family members in the middle of the night with no one hearing the gunshots, or running, or doing anything to defend themselves? Rifles are pretty loud. Just one shot should have woken up everybody in the house and had people scrambling. But nobody did anything and remained in their beds. There was no evidence of the family members being drugged or being dragged or any struggle or anything. If we're being objective, it really looks like they just laid there and allowed themselves to be murdered. 
Just uh, one year later after these horrific events, the Lutz family moved into the home. The same people that the movie The Amityville Horror focuses on. And at first they were really excited because they got the house at an extremely low price and it was pretty classy. At least on the outside. But, I mean, the, the budget sale on the Amityville home was obviously because of the murders, but the people selling the house never told the Lutz family at all about any of that. Being religious, they called in a Catholic priest to bless the house. Well, as they were in the process of moving in. I'm not really sure... I'm not really sure how accurate this is, but it's a, a cool part of the story and pretty creepy because as the Catholic priest made his way up to the room of the former murderer who killed his whole family just a year prior... Allegedly, a disembodied voice yelled out at the priest, Get out! Which obviously freaked him out pretty bad, and he left as quickly as possible. But before leaving, he told the family not to use that room as a bedroom. Very, very sternly and kind of bizarrely. But he didn't say anything about the disembodied voice or the evil presence that he felt. It wasn't long before weird stuff started happening. The Lutz family claimed to feel strange sensations and phenomena from the very first night they stayed in the home. Something or some things began influencing the minds of the Lutz family. Because very out of character, they started acting aggressive towards one another and arguing when they normally wouldn't. And instead of interacting with kids in the neighborhood like any normal child, their daughter started hanging out exclusively with a new imaginary friend. Not only that, but mysterious foul odors began emanating from nowhere in the house randomly, and hundreds of flies swarmed the room the priest heard the voice, despite it being a time of year that flies are normally dormant. George Lutz would have horrifying hallucinations of, while laying in bed, his wife turning into an old hag, and on one particular night, he even saw her just levitating above the bed. But despite all the creepy stuff, the most horrifying aspect was the manipulation of their minds, and the altering of the way that they perceived reality. Their whole personalities just started to change, with George Lutz probably having the worst of it, becoming more violent, angry, and just a darker person. But over the short time that they did live there, there was a plethora of unexplained high strangeness going down to the Amityville house with things eventually getting so crazy that the Lutz family just had to pack up and leave. And that is only after a mere 28 days of staying there. And, and around this time, this is when Ed and Lorraine Warren got called to check the house out. They were contacted by Marvin Scott, a reporter who had actually worked with the Warrens before investigating other anomalous activity. And during the Warrens' investigation, the Lutz family refused... Well... <laughs> can't think of the right word. They fanatically refused to ever step foot in the house again. No matter what was offered, asked, or anything. But the Warrens and Marvin Scott were not alone. There was a whole group of people that came to investigate the house. The Warrens were among them, but they were not the only ones. The investigators included parapsychologists, other paranormal investigators, and a crapload of reporters. Right after entering the Lutz home, the Warrens almost immediately knew that something strange was going on. Ed was drawn to the basement, and when he went down there, he started spouting religious stuff, which antagonized an entity that threw him to the ground. But basically, all the sensitives were affected in some way. Lorraine was a gifted psychic, and she was quickly overwhelmed by the demonic energy that flowed throughout the Amityville home. And the... the entire area, I guess, according to legend. She was constantly haunted by psychic impressions of violence, suffering, pain, sadness, and especially the murders that happened a year prior. She would see the corpses of the victims and the murderer himself, Ronald, walking throughout the home and was actually even physically assaulted, though not nearly as bad as Ed. The crew even saw the spirit of a boy, to which they allegedly caught a picture, and ugh, I don't know, it seems debunkable, but you can check it out with a quick Google search, it's pretty famous. It's the image of a little boy in a doorway. 
But after the initial investigations, Ed and Lorraine Warren studied the history of the land, the home, and things started to make a little bit more sense to them. They learned all about the Native Americans and their belief that it was a spiritual hot spot between worlds and about all the ritual executions and burials, as well as all like the dark occult stuff that went down there. They even found some plausible evidence that backed up the legend of John Ketchum living there, the man who was uh, kicked out of Massachusetts during the Salem witch trials for practicing witchcraft. So by then it all pretty much made sense to the Warrens, all the serious high strangeness that was going on in the area. Their team did their best to cleanse the land and try and limit the evil demonic presences and whatnot, but they didn't really think it did much good. The land was just too saturated and evil. Soon after, the Lutz family just sold the home to the bank and it was back on the market. Next up, we have a case that might might just seem a little bit familiar to you. The case of the Perrin family haunting. In the winter of 1970, the Perrin family moved into what they thought was their dream house in rural Rhode Island. Everything seemed pretty normal at first, other than it being winter with snow everywhere, so the children were kind of forced to stay inside most of the time. They were... They were a pretty big family too, so the house was alive and noisy with activity. You know, how kids can get rambunctiously doing what kids do. And as the mother of the family, Carolyn Perrin, watched her children playing, something haunted the back of her mind. When they were first moving in, the original owners gave a bizarre warning. And it was the first indicator that something strange might be going on, but it was very vague and cryptic. When the old owners were leaving, they told her, For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And it didn't take long for this worry that Carolyn had to shift into reality. Because when the weird stuff started, it went straight to utterly horrifying. Early into their stay at the home, she woke up in the dead of night and saw the creepiest thing she'd ever seen. Before her in the darkness was an extremely tall woman in an old gray dress with her head hanging to the side that looked like a sack of cobwebs. And frozen with fear, Carolyn could do nothing but stare at the entity until then its mouth opened gaping unnaturally, yelling, Get out, get out, I'll drive you out with death and gloom. And it was this initial encounter that really sparked the supernatural activities in the home. From that point on, the paranormal became very normal to the Perrin family. Inanimate objects would move on their own without explanation, and things would be found randomly where they were not left. But the, but the most unnerving part was that the children began to see spirits, which caused a lot of panic. However, interestingly enough, not all the ghosts were frightening or malicious, and some, I guess, could even be, even have been considered benevolent. Like the entity Miss Arnold, who'd actually tuck the kids into bed at night, kissing them on their foreheads and everything. And though that does sound pretty creepy, the entity was, by all accounts, very motherly and comforting. Then there was the sweeping ghost who was always heard but never seen and actually cleaned stuff like uh, wherever it was heard sweeping in the background there would be dust piles and and you know just like the area tidied up I guess. Only the sound of a phantom broom sweeping the floor signified its presence. Another nice apparition was that of a young boy who hung himself in the attic of the farmhouse back in the 1700s. His name was Johnny Arnold, and the girls basically treated him like a real-life friend, even giving him a nickname they called him Manny. The entity would play with the children like normal kids would and always seemed interested in uplifting their spirits. After some time of living with all this paranormal phenomena, Carolyn decided to take it upon herself along with her 
husband to investigate the history of the house. And let's just say she found some pretty disturbing things. In the past, there had been eight generations of the same family who had lived in the home. And it turned out that they all pretty much either died in mysterious ways, committed suicide, or were even outright murdered. There was even documentation of children who died by drowning that could have possibly been killed by their own mother, a woman who had gone completely insane and turned her madness onto her family. Now, it is important to note that this investigation of the home's history actually took place over the span of years. So the Perrin family put up with this craziness for a long time, even getting used to the unique spirits that roam the old house. They became so familiar with all the entities that they could even match the spirits to the actual historical people that once lived there, such as the benevolent Miss Arnold and the boy ghost Johnny Arnold. They all turned out to be real-life historically true, among many other confirmed once real-life people who are now entities that roam the home. And the majority of the spirits seemed to be completely oblivious to the fact that they were even dead. But there were others that came off, at least, with the impression that they were very aware of the fear that they caused in the, the living, the parent family such as a man with a crooked smile who used to appear in the corner of the girls' room as they played and just stared at them. Overall, though, stereotypical poltergeist phenomena was a common thing there, with furniture and household objects seemingly having a mind of their own. Doors and cupboards would open and close by themselves, and disembodied voices could be heard constantly at night. Despite all that, for the most part, the spirits did seem to be non-aggressive, basically lost in their own world that didn't exist anymore and oblivious to the family's presence. But there were entities that <laughs> were not happy that the family was there. Like the creepy bent neck lady who told Carolyn to get out that one night when she was sleeping. Slowly but surely, more and more malicious entities were making their presence known. In the farmhouse where Johnny Arnold hung himself, there was especially active demonic type activity. Invisible hands would assault the family members who went in there, especially the young girls. They'd have their hair pulled by phantom hands and just really be terrified by unseen forces. And consistently around 5 a.m., apparitions that reeked of rotting flesh and looked the part would wake up the family members by messing with their beds tossing them out, or even worse. The paranormal activity just escalated and escalated. Eventually, it got so bad that the family was basically assaulted in extremely traumatizing ways on a regular basis. One particular night, a disembodied voice croaked out that seven soldiers were buried within their walls. It claimed that they were murdered and left for eternity without justice. And during all these encounters with these malicious entities, the bent-neck lady continued to terrorize them the whole way through, slowly becoming, or seemingly becoming, more and more powerful. Eventually, they discovered that this utterly nightmarish entity's name in life was Bathsheba, and the dark spirit had a particular hatred for the mother of the children, Carolyn. Mm, pretty much for the most part, focusing on her to mess with. Bathsheba seemed to have kind of a crush on her husband. If you're familiar with the Conjuring movies that are based off of Ed and Lorraine Warren, then this may kind of strike a chord of familiarity, because Bathsheba is the main antagonist in the Conjuring movie, and in real life was accused of killing her own children and being a practitioner of witchcraft. Eventually, after years and years of enduring this, traumatized and fed up with all the paranormal activity, they finally contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren. They hoped that the famous paranormal investigators could help them deal with their issues. And you may wonder, why would they stick around for all these years enduring all this, like, living nightmare kind of stuff? I know I wondered. Well, the Perrin family had nowhere else to go, 
They were trapped in the house because of financial reasons. Literally everything that they had and all of their savings and everything was put into this house. If they left, not only would they be broke, but they didn't have any other family to lean on. They'd be homeless. So in the end, Ed and Lorraine Warren was their only hope for salvation. And the Warrens answered the call. The psychic talents of Lorraine immediately picked up on all of the negative entities in the home. In fact, it was so saturated in just this, like, darkness that the couple pretty much immediately resorted to drastic measures. With, of course, Ed preaching his religious stuff and, uh, you know, denouncing the dark entities with fiery biblical oratory. And soon after arriving, Lorraine performed a seance. This really had a serious effect and stirred up the pot. The entities in the house seemed to become alive from her psychic presence, and everybody looked on in horror at Carolyn because out of nowhere she started speaking to them in a foreign language that she could have had no way of knowing. Then suddenly, after an abrupt stop and uh, some violent jerking, Carolyn was thrown about the room like a rag doll. Not to mention the poltergeist activity in the home went crazy. After this frightening experience, the Warrens were definitely prepared to take on the case of the parent family haunting. However, unlike the movie version, no matter what they did in their quest to cleanse the home of evil, they actually just caused the paranormal activity in the house to get worse and worse and even more dangerous. See, where in the movie it's a happy ending and everything's all good and well, in reality, the Warrens might have actually failed at this case in a lot of ways. The Perrin family was not religious, and this was a problem for Ed and Lorraine. They said because of their lack of faith, they couldn't perform an exorcism, and if there was no belief in God's power, then it wouldn't do much for the house. See, and it's kind of this, 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 uh inability to be flexible that the Warrens in their paranormal investigations might not have been the most efficient, or in their demonology. In a lot of lore I've researched and uh, just things I've come across, books I've read, whatnot, it doesn't necessarily require any universal belief system. Because yes, while faith and belief is really required to perform exorcisms right and have them work, it is only the faith and belief that's required and can come from multiple different perspectives or cultural outlooks. There is no end-all be-all universal truth to this kind of stuff, so in a way, dogma kind of worked against the Warrens. Again, just for reference, not going against any religious beliefs, I respect whatever beliefs you may have. This is just my own personal opinion based off of the knowledge I have. I also think that a lot of this stuff has to do with the subconscious and the psyche of individual people. And in the end, all the Warrens could really do was tell the parent family to leave the house. Their solution was for them to just pack up and leave, but like I said earlier, that was not an option for them. So the Warrens documented everything and did everything they could to the best of their knowledge and abilities and left. The parent family were forced to endure the horrible hauntings for a decade until they could finally move out. But eventually, everybody turned out okay. One of the daughters wrote a best-selling book called House of Darkness on the case, and you should really check it out. A lot of the different point of views contradict each other concerning the parent family haunting, but I think that hers is probably, if not the most objective, definitely one of the most objective. And of course, the case is also made famous by, like what I said before, the Conjuring movies, which had a much more climactic and happy ending. But in the real world, the suffering was far from over after the Warrens retreated, unable to help the parent family or end their horrific haunting. Welcome to the Chamber of Mysteries. I am Anubis, the Egyptian god of death and guide through the underworld. Recently, the goddess Ma'at, 
pointed out to me that the scales of justice have not been in balance. This is not good, and can bring chaos to the multiverse. But you, dear mortal, may help in averting this cosmic disaster by supporting Cryptic Chronicles. In doing so, you will gain ad-free episodes of the podcast, as well as bonus content only for patrons. In spreading free thinking and higher knowledge, the forces of darkness are kept at bay. Simply subscribe to the Chronicler's Vault at crypticchronicles.com and by pledging a single dollar a month, you can help keep Apophis in the void and Ra's sky chariot soaring proudly through the universe. Also, subscribe to the Cryptic Chronicles YouTube channel. It is in its infancy right now, but with more support, there will be more time to post more content. So, subscribe, share, talk. These things help. Anubis, don't forget to tell them about iTunes and spreading the show. Oh, right. Thank you, Ma'at. Please, mortal, help broaden the scope of listeners for the podcast by leaving a good review on iTunes and share every episode or any Cryptic Chronicles content as much as you can. In doing so, we can increase the audience and fans for the show, spreading it across all the consciousness of humanity. Help fight the darkness by supporting Cryptic Chronicles and assist the Goddess of the Scales and I, Anubis, God of Death, and bringing balance to the planes of existence. The astral currents must be calmed, and the opposites must be reconciled. As above, so below. Farewell, mortal. Next, we have maybe a little bit more less well-known case of the Warrens, but still pretty bizarre. The case of the South End Werewolf. And though this case may be called the South End Werewolf, it actually seems to be more a case of possession. There isn't any actual person growing fur and fangs or anything like that. And when compared to a lot of the other cases that the Warrens have covered, it seems to be a lot more cerebral than frightening. It took place for the most part in Essex, England, and revolved around a man named Bill Ramsey. Now, Bill grew up completely normal with a stereotypical childhood. No high strangeness whatsoever. That is until the age of nine, where something extremely bizarre happened to him that would change his life forever. One day while Bill was playing in the backyard, out of nowhere came this icy feeling that just consumed his body. As he was gripped in terror, the whole phenomenon started to cause him to sweat profusely. In his mind's eye, almost like a vision, all he could see was a pack of wolves and waves crashing on sand. He was engulfed in a miasma of fecundant odor, alien to him and impossible to escape. Horrified beyond belief, the young child did all he really could do and cried and screamed for his mother for help. And when his parents did come outside, they found... Not what they expected. Bill was tearing out a fence post and garden fence straight up out of the ground. His parents were basically frozen in fear at the sight of their nine-year-old son throwing the fence over his head and then chewing on it like an animal. The parents would recall later that that look that the child gave them with those feral eyes was something that was just not their young kid. It was otherworldly and bestial. The young Bill was just not there. It was something else leering at them. And this freaked them out so bad that they just ran in the house. They didn't even come back outside until they could visually see that he was calmed down and back to normal. This extremely bizarre situation only happened once in Bill Ramsey's childhood. But he and his parents 
never forgot about the incident. I mean, he even grew up pretty normal after that for the most part, and eventually got married and had some kids. Everything basically seemed legit and normal for him for a, a long while. However, stuff quickly took a turn for the weird around two years into his marriage. Bill began to have night terrors about wolves, and not just randomly once in a while, but every single night. The nightmares were so bad it caused him to literally scream as he woke up, and he was always covered in cold sweat every time. And this went on for a while, but eventually did fade away, with everything going back to normal and once again Bill trying to put this bizarre wolf stuff behind him. Around 15 years later, Bill was hanging out with some friends at a bar, or, I mean a pub, because they're in England, and was basically just having a good night. Then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he began to experience the same horror that came over him as a child so long ago while he was playing in his parents' backyard. Visions peppered through his mind's eye as he began to fade in and out of reality. The wolves, the waves, the miasma of pestilence. It all came back to him just like it was yesterday. Feeling overwhelmed and quite close to panic, Bill stumbled away from his friends saying that he was going to the bathroom. Staggering the whole way, he slowly made his way to the sink, but when he looked up into the mirror, it was not his own face staring back at him. It was a bestial werewolf, grinning impossibly wide, and staring at him with deep red sadistic eyes. And let's just say that he ran from the bathroom in quite a panic. He basically freaked out everybody in the pub, and his friends were so worried they decided to just take him home and call it a night. But on the way home, it seemed like the wolf had finally taken complete control again, just like when it did when he was a kid. He attacked his friend who was sitting next to him, biting into his leg and making all kinds of bestial sounds. He was snarling and growling and raked at him with fingers bent as if they were claws. Everyone began to panic and his friend who was driving slammed on the brakes and the car slid to a sliding halt. It took all of his friends quite a lot of effort to rip him off his other friend and pull him from the car. Somehow Bill was much, much stronger than he normally was, and it was all they could do just to keep themselves safe. But eventually, Bill did start to calm down. And it's easy to say that basically all of his friends thought that he was having some sort of psychotic breakdown. The incident horrified everybody involved, and they were all convinced that when it all happened, the person that they knew was completely gone, replaced with some hideous beast or something. And all of his friends were very, very, very worried about him. And it wasn't too much later, um, just before Christmas, that Bill gave everyone who knew him another scare. He started suffering from severe heart pain and was immediately rushed to the hospital. Heart attacks were not uncommon for a man his age. So he went through the motions, but I guess the scare was for no reason because he seemed fine, just in pain. However, all of a sudden, when a nurse was doing a routine blood test, Bill freaked out and started acting bestial once more, ferociously growling and howling just like a wolf. He violently bit into the nurse and she screamed in horror, but was pretty much helpless against him. But people did hear her cries, and as people swarmed around Bill, he let her go. However, anyone who tried to grab him or touch him was thrown across the room from his supernatural strength. Whatever dark forces were controlling him was just too much for any common person to deal with. Some witnesses even claimed that Bill's body physically transformed to become more bestial. The security that wrestled with him could barely manage to get handcuffs on him while the doctors busted out the most powerful tranquilizers they had and pumped him full of them. When he eventually woke up, everything was back to normal, but the nightmarish experience haunted him, and those who were close to him and knew him could tell he was suffering as he looked at them through feverish eyes. Most people had no way to react or really comprehend what was going on with this crazy situation, but most people just thought that he was psychologically breaking down. This time though, there was no long gap or break between possessions. Because it was not long after this situation that he began to feel the surge of cold rush through him again and the beast began to take over. This time he knew it was coming though, so he rushed to the hospital as fast as he could. But when he got there, he was 
already basically in his possessed state. And this time he was much more aggressive and violent. He began attacking everyone like an animal and it took six cops to take him down. But this time they weren't screwing around and he was in prison. Everyone including medical professionals and psychologists and his friends and his family all told him that he needed to check into an insane asylum. Nobody really believed him that he was being possessed or took anything he said about the wolf vision seriously. But Bill knew that he wasn't crazy and resorted to a more esoteric solution. And this is where the Warrens come in. Ed and Lorraine Warren were already famous demonologists at this time and well known for their paranormal investigations. They were very compassionate to Bill and accepted taking on his case. They worked with him for a while and eventually brought him over to America. And uh, basically blew up big time. Became a global phenomenon in the media. I mean, at the time, it was his 15 minutes of fame, and it was a big, big deal back then. It was basically everywhere. The Notorious Wolfman. The International Sensation. Lorraine would use her psychic powers to penetrate his consciousness and worked him up and down. And of course, Ed did all of his uh, preachy, um, you know, like church stuff. And eventually, they did come to the conclusion that there was an entity of demonic nature that attached itself to Bill since he was a small child. They went through the motions and eventually performed an exorcism, and Bill never suffered from any more bouts of uncontrollable bestial behavior ever again. So I'm pretty sure that everyone's heard of the haunted doll Annabelle. It's been featured in the Conjuring movies and has even had some prequels made about it. Highly inaccurate prequels, but imaginative ones nonetheless. While the Annabelle doll really does exist, it's not as creepy looking as it looks in the movies, but it is a real thing. The doll is actually just a plain old ordinary Raggedy Ann doll, just cloth and stuffing and and not really outwardly creepy looking at all. Despite the Conjuring movie prequels about Annabelle, the origins of the doll are unknown. But what is known is that in 1970, it was bought at an antique store. The buyer then gave it to her daughter, who was a nursing student named Deidre. Deidre had always had a fascination with dolls her whole life. But she was an adult now, being 28 years old, and lived in a normal apartment with a roommate, and yeah, we just had a normal life. She loved her doll collection so much that she treated her dolls like real little girls, even giving them jewelry and whatnot. The animal doll itself had a bracelet and was given a lot more attention in its attire than an average person most likely would give a doll. Deidre was really excited about the gift from her mother, and at first, everything was normal. That is, until one morning, the roommates woke up to a strange parchment paper being found on the floor. And this was incredibly bizarre to them because none of them even owned any parchment paper. It seemed to have just popped up out of thin air. But even weirder, there was a message written on the parchment. It said, Help me. Pretty creepy. But this was just one of many creepy messages to come. Many more parchment notes were left by Annabelle, and the stuff that would have been necessary to make them were not anywhere in the apartment. Instead of instantly jumping to the conclusion of a haunted doll, they reasonably thought that someone must have been sneaking in the apartment and playing a horrifying and unwanted prank on them. They both agreed that there had to have been some sort of invader in their home. So they set up traps of sorts, like uh, putting scotch tape on doors, and uh, things of that nature, so if anyone opened any doors, there would be evidence that they did so. They did this for a while, and, well, none of the traps they set up showed any signs of being tampered with. There was no way that anyone had been in the apartment. And they got even more creeped out anyway because the only thing that did move in the house was Annabelle the doll. The roommates started noticing that it was always left in different positions. 
like its arms and legs being posed differently, and sometimes the positions that the doll was found in seemed to be pointing at something. Odder still was that the doll was constantly being found in places where the roommates had not left it. Annabelle seemed to teleport from room to room. The girls were very, very much beginning to get very uneasy, and an eerie energy seemed to permeate the apartment, causing them to be in a permanent state of anxiety. One night, the two came home along with Deidre's roommate's fiancé, and when they opened the door, there was Annabelle kneeling somehow, just right there in front of them at the door. All they could do was just stand there in shock. And well, I know that that doesn't sound very scary, but this was a stuffed doll. It's literally impossible that it could have held that pose on its own. Not only that, but Deidre swore to the others that she had left Annabelle locked in her room before they left. She picked up the doll and tried to prop it in the kneeling position once more, but the doll had no joints, and it was impossible to put Annabelle back into that position. It just flopped over like the rag doll it was. Soon after, Deidre's boyfriend started having nightmares of the doll choking him. And one particular night, he woke up from one of these night terrors and found Annabelle sitting on his chest. Pissed off, he grabbed the doll and threw it across the room. But then he noticed that he was bleeding from four slashes through his shirt. Somehow he was cut while sleeping and didn't wake up. He looked across the room at the Raggedy Ann doll on the floor and really, really did not want to believe that it could have been the doll. But there wasn't any logical answer to what happened. And more supernatural occurrences went on for some time until eventually, Deidre called Ed and Lorraine Warren. When the Warrens arrived, there was a quick visit, and of course, Lorraine's psychic abilities picked up something unusual going on inside the apartment. And depending on who you believe and what resources you look at when researching the Annabelle case, there's con there's conflicting there's contradictions about what went down. One of those contradictions is that the roommates were communicating with the doll who claimed to be the ghost of a little girl and that they told it that it was welcome and accepted and part of their household, I guess. This in turn invited a demon into their lives. And according to my research, it's very true that there's always an entity willing to step into the shoes and pretend to be another entity. And a lot of the times they'll try and fool you to letting them in while being very persuasive and deceitful. Because according to demonology, a demon actually has to be invited into somebody's life somehow. Only the most powerful can invade on their own. And it really didn't take long for Ed and Lorraine Warren to conclude that this entity haunting the Annabelle doll was indeed demonic, using the Raggedy Ann doll as like a portal or an anchor into the physical world. Suffice to say that they accepted the case and took the doll home with them where Ed placed Annabelle on his desk to keep an eye on it. When it started teleporting around and doing its creepy stuff again, they didn't freak out too much because, you know, they're used to this kind of thing. But after Ed came into the room and it was just levitating in midair a couple times, they decided they had to do a little bit more about the doll. And with Ed being super religious, he called in a Catholic priest to attempt to exercise it cleanse it of the evil entity using it as an anchor. But when the Catholic priest arrived, he did not take the situation seriously, even laughing and kind of making fun of the Warrens. But he did eventually agree to go into the room and exercise the doll for them. However, that's not what the priest did. When he was all alone with Annabelle, he just mocked it and made fun of it. Didn't perform any rituals or do any sacred words or holy stuff or whatever. He just antagonized the doll. He then left the room, telling the Warrens the deed was done, and took off. And then he suffered a near-fatal car accident. The Catholic priest did survive, but he very, very nearly died. And when he recovered, he told Ed and Lorraine Warren that right before the crash, he saw Annabelle in his rearview mirror looking at him from the back seat. Now convinced that whatever entity inhabited the doll was dangerous, they locked it up in a case that had a sign on it that said, Do not open in any case. Ever. The case would be blessed and they did everything that they could to make sure that the demon was trapped in there. 
But later, a young man who was a skeptic uh, didn't believe any of that stuff and started banging on the case, making fun of Annabelle. He died in a car crash on the way home. So, disrespecting Annabelle could be fatal, and you probably should not insult demons. The doll is still around and still locked up in that case, residing in the Warrens' occult museum. But with uh, both the Warrens dead, it's now owned by their son-in-law. And on various occasions, a lot of rich people have tried to buy Annabelle from him, even uh, offering up to $2 million for the doll. But he always declines the offers because he says he can't in good conscience give anybody something so evil and dangerous. Also, he honors the Warrens and knows that they considered it their duty to keep Annabelle imprisoned there. But whatever demonic connection that the entity had with the doll seems to have kind of waned in recent years. Maybe it's because it's just stuck there and it doesn't find it exciting or there's no one to mess with. But the doll will always be famous for its horrifying paranormal activity. I just wish that there was more information and we knew the actual story behind the doll because that mother bought it in an antique shop, so it was already decently old and I'm sure that there's a really dark history behind it, but we'll probably never know. But I'm guessing it probably had something to do with uh, the dark occult. Hi there, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. We'll even give your podcast a shout out. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. And last but not least, next is the White Lady of Union Cemetery. Union Cemetery is located in New England, Connecticut and it's allegedly one of the most haunted cemeteries in America. It's rich with legends of the paranormal and even true stories like grave robbers and people who'd sell corpses to scientific places conducting research on human anatomy. And the cemetery is located right smack dab next to a creepy old church from the 1700s, so it's almost right out of a movie. One of these entities that is said to haunt this cemetery is the White Lady. But she seems to get around because she's also been seen walking along Route 59, as well as other roads or places in the area. And if these tales are to be believed, she's even responsible for many car crashes and the source of uh, anomalous activity to electronics. Like car heaters or air conditioners will malfunction if people drive by the cemetery at night. And even the radio will start to become static, sometimes with eerie voices coming through. So I guess to a degree, this ghost can be classified as dangerous. The cemetery is a very popular spot for ghost hunters, demonologists, and the New England Society for Psychic Research has also conducted many studies there. And when it comes to paranormal investigation, there is no experts, there is no comparing qualifications and stuff like that. But we'll just say that some of the biggest uh, names in any of that kind of research has spent time here investigating, which is pretty interesting, but it's also interesting that one of the most well-known legends of the cemetery is about a white lady legend of all things, because she is easily the most famous apparition that resides there, 
but there are many other accounts of encounters with other paranormal entities in the cemetery. I just also find it interesting that it's a white lady legend because there's white lady legends from all around the world, spanning across many different cultures. It's a classical urban legend uh, ghost story archetype. And I'm pretty sure that if you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles, you've probably heard one of those legends before, such as uh, um, somebody driving home alone at night, and there's a lady on the side of the road, a young woman who needs help, and she's usually in a white gown. The man picks up the lady and is like, where you gotta go, and takes her to her destination she requests, and when he pulls up to the house, he turns around to say that we're here, but the lady's not even there. And when he goes up to the house, the mom or dad or whoever answers the door says that that woman has been dead for a long time. So this is a pretty common type of ghost in paranormal lore. And within the Union Cemetery, there's a lot of the general haunting type stuff you would think would happen. You know, like cold spots out of nowhere and people get shivers down their entire body, random noises, etc. What's odd about the cold spots is that they even occur at the heights of summer during very high temperatures. There's also a lot of documented cases of children becoming unexplainably ill for no reason, so it's actually advisable never to take kids there unless it's daytime. Those who walk the cemetery at night often hear voices or whispers calling out to them from the darkness, which should not be answered unless you want to invite bad luck. And out of all of the high strangeness that occurs at the cemetery, one of the main anomalies is the plentiful electromagnetic disturbances that seems to affect any modern electronic technology. And oddly enough, old-timey cameras actually can still capture um, visual paranormal activity there, but not cell phones usually or digital stuff. And remember, this is all allegedly. I've never seen it myself because there's also people who say that you can capture light orbs and stuff on digital cameras. So who knows, maybe you can get pictures with your cell phone. But according to my research, it's basically um, photos, old kinds of photos, after they're developed and already like, you know, you can look at them and everything. After they're already developed, light orbs will appear in the images. And people have also seen bizarre, strange red lines that go through the air, and these have been captured on camera too. But out of all the weird stuff that happens at the Union Cemetery, probably the most fascinating phenomenon is called the mist, which is pretty self-explanatory, but it's a, it's a blue mist that sometimes is white, and it only hovers around in certain parts of the cemetery. And it can basically be a clear, cloudless night, and for some reason, just this little patch has mist, and everywhere else, there's no mist anywhere, which is pretty creepy. However, it's not as creepy as the floating red eyes that travel around the cemetery at night. They usually just hover about six feet off the ground, and according to legend, the eyes are the revenant of a man who burned to death across the street in the 30s named Earl. Once these eyes spot somebody, it will usually turn its gaze towards them and move in their direction, which is horrifying. But every time this has ever happened, the witness basically just took off running off the bat. So there's never been a documented account where the floating eyes actually caught up to a person. Despite all these anomalies, there is no paranormal activity more common at the cemetery than the White Lady. The ghost has been described as a typical White Lady, or Lady in White, that is common in folklore all over the world, like I've already said. And these hauntings are usually associated with a woman who was betrayed in some way, or lost children to tragedy, can never go home, wants to go home. Something messed up happened. The entity appears visually as a young woman who either wears a nightgown or a wedding dress. Since the mid-20th century, she's been seen by a whole ton of witnesses. And like any good legend, she has a bunch of contradicting stories behind her. Some people say that the white lady was a woman who died during childbirth, and in her confused state between life and death, wanders looking for her child. Then there are two other versions of the story and both basically stating that she died of foul play or murder. The tales go she was either killed around the start of the 20th century and her body was thrown in a sinkhole behind the church, or she was murdered by her jealous husband in the 40s. And yet still there's a much darker story, that of a 12-year-old prostitute named Libby Mavis. 
whose apparition came to her former madame claiming that her body had been stolen from her grave. And according to the legend, when the authorities arrived at the madame's urging, the young girl's body was indeed gone. So you can't really go wrong in choosing whichever one of these stories that could be the origin for the lady in white. The entity is mostly seen or directly appearing right in front of people's cars as they drive past the cemetery. And when people pull over to ask her if she needs help, she usually vanishes from sight right in front of them. Oddly enough, also, if she is uh, appears in front of a car and is actually hit by the car, she will actually mimic what would happen if she were alive and actually being hit by a car, which has freaked a lot of people out and thinking that they killed somebody. And when the driver pulls over all stressed out, there's never anyone there. A local fireman even claims that when he hit the white lady with his car, the apparition somehow left a very real and very physical dent in it. The nightmarish account was also pretty creepily described by him. The fireman stated that he was just driving along the road one night when everything outside the car and inside took on a red hue. He then looked to his right, and there sitting in the passenger seat was the apparition of a man who looked like an old-timey farmer wearing a straw hat. And when he looked back to the road, there was the white lady reaching out to him with desperate eyes. He hit the brakes, but there was nothing he could do from stopping his vehicle from running into her. And that's gotta be one of the most bizarre ghost apparition encounters I've ever heard. It's almost like he stepped into a different dimension for a second. The whole everything around him taking on a red hue, that's pretty weird and fascinating. So back in the 90s, the early 90s to be exact, Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated the spot of extreme high strangeness. They conducted their investigation at night and they brought video cameras with them to record the experience. Something the Warrens didn't really do earlier in their career because of the technological limitations. They set up their camera tripod in the front of the main gates to the cemetery and waited to see if the entity would show itself. Which it did. They actually allegedly captured around six seconds of footage of the white lady. But other than that, this case really isn't too much to write home about concerning the Warrens. The Warrens did say though that the Union Cemetery was a hotspot for demonic activity, and Lorraine's psychic visions caused her to estimate that there were many entities that resided there or, more accurately, were trapped there. Alright, that's all for this Halloween episode, covering some creepy cases the Warrens investigated. Ed and Lorraine Warren were very fascinating paranormal investigators. I mean, come on, how many novels and movies have been inspired by their work? They've left a huge legacy behind them that has yet to be rivaled as far as I know. But as I said in the intro, there's a lot of people out there who hate the Warrens and think they were scam artists, only interested in fame and money. And there's some truth to it because it is true that they took a lot of credit from others, especially in the Einfeld Poltergeist case, which I didn't cover, but that case is probably the best example of them stealing other people's thunder. In the movie The Conjuring 2, they are basically depicted as the heroes and stars of the show. Well, that's based on the Einfield poltergeist. And in truth, they were latecomers to the party, and they actually played a far less role than other investigators. In fact, when I was researching the Einfield poltergeist, you know, because I was thinking of it, including it in this episode, a lot of the articles didn't even mention the Warrens, and they were only there for like a couple days or something. But despite all that, it's important to remember that they were making a living off of doing what they loved, their passion. And those who think that they shouldn't have been interested in profit are basically just kind of dumb. They had bills to pay just like anyone else. Gotta make a living. So despite that kind of stuff, you can't really just throw out all that they accomplished in paranormal research because of a few times that they weren't completely honest. It's just not practical. Even Tesla had to bend the truth once in a while to get funding for stuff that would be very beneficial to mankind. Sometimes they just have to do what they had to do to get more attention for more funding. In a sense, they did what they had to do keeping their goals in line with the greater good, helping people. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not justifying anything they did or condoning it. I'm just saying that there's a silver lining and there's always more to stuff. Things are rarely what they seem at face value. All in all, I think they have a lot to offer in terms of legitimate paranormal research and demonology. Despite their obsession with Christian dogma that limited their objectivity, they are top-tier investigators and have left an undeniably prominent impact in all paranormal fields. I love their creepy investigations and all the books and movies that they've spawned, and it's really sad that Lorraine Warren passed away recently. She will be missed. But at least she lived long enough to see her fame basically skyrocket. The Conjuring Universe, they are insanely popular movies, and a lot of them are pretty decent horror movies even though they're PG-13, and that's saying a lot. Alright, that's a wrap. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and basically all podcast hosts. If you have time, please leave us a good review on iTunes or any of our other host sites, as well as uh, our YouTube channel. Check that out. It's kind of in the works. I don't have much time to work on it, but I will be consistent. Visit the website, crypticchronicles.com, for articles on the unexplained and all the weird stuff you can handle. Please support the show on Patreon. And thank you to all Chronicler's Vault subscribers, especially Angela Allen Delaire and Mark Lane. If you think this show is worth a buck a month, please visit our website and simply click on the Chronicler's Vault, the vault icon at the bottom of any article or podcast episode. On Patreon, you'll get versions of the show that are completely ad-free, so you won't hear me going on about stuff like this. It's just all the juicy stuff. Not to mention that the more support that I get, the more episodes and content I can release. Alright, I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles, and of course, Happy Halloween!